This is Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker on CFUR 88.7 FM in Prince George and around the world on the Series of Tubes. Hello everyone, welcome to my new show, Cocktail Hour. Thanks for sticking with me as I move on to interviewing trustworthy and interesting people over drinks. Now, the first of these people is my longtime friend, Ken Mills, who ended up becoming my doctoral supervisor when I did my PhD at the University of Toronto. Uh, Ken is an extraordinary man. He uh, was a Rhodes Scholar. He uh, became a tenured professor at Princeton University before the age of 30. Uh, again, before the age of 30, he published a book called Idolatry and Its Enemies, uh, an amazing history of Spanish efforts to control indige indigenous religiosity in the Andean region of South America in the early modern period. Uh, Ken is a well-traveled, well-spoken, extraordinary man of uh, great humility and gentleness and it's a privilege to have him come on the show and talk uh, very honestly about his work his passions and uh, the small moments that we've shared together helping to better understand the world uh, but I thought I'd start the conversation in a certain place and then we could go somewhere from there. Okay. So what I want to, so for when I met you and for much of the time that I have known you, there has been this um, early modern itinerant priest who has loomed over your life intermittently and periodically and in a variety of creative contexts, this guy, Diego de Ocaña. And um, I, I don't know if you're finished with him now, nope. but I uh, like, this has now been more than a decade that uh, you've had this relationship as a scholar of this guy. And so I wanted to, ask you to explain to folks who this guy was and what pulled you into his life. Yeah. He, he doesn't loom over me <laughs> so much, <laughs> so much as he's remained interesting. Um, and I think the condensation of the project has taught me an awful lot. Obviously if I needed to, I could have finished this book very differently um, years ago. And so I'm, rather than lamenting that, um, which I think is boring and probably beside the point, what am I doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm into that. He's shown up in one way or another in nearly all the conversations we've had over the past mm -hmm. 16 years. I was on a phone call with an art historian named Tom Cummins. I had to give a talk on the silver mining center of Potosi. And 
Cummins very generously said, there's some really interesting passages in an early 17th century chronicle by a traveling alms collector named Diego de Ocaña. He spends quite a bit of time in Potosi, and I think there might even be a miracle narrative in which mine workers are left for dead and then miraculously saved by the intervention of the Virgin Mary. And the teller, and indeed the creator of an image of the Virgin in Potosi, in this place in what is today Bolivia, was this Diego de Ocaña. And it was this moment where, a little bit desperate for my lecture material, I went into it and I thought, damn it, I read this guy when I was a graduate student. And I even had a file card relating to this where I completely dismissed Ocaña in two or three sentences. You know, as one does preparing as a graduate student to, you know, show your bona fides and move on to research. So I'd categorized him as an alms collector, Virgin Mary guy, bit of a traveler, not a very good reputation for telling the truth. I'd picked that up from some scholar. So I'd carried dismissal into this. But when I read him, I realized there was a verve and a narrative style and a sort of capacity to up the ante by making literary frames come to life, by pretending that the people he was meeting, in this case, let's focus on Potosi, making them larger than life and connective to the readership that he was imagining back in Spain, just to contextualize it a little bit further away from how I got to him. Ocaña traveled from 1599 until 1608 through much of what we think of as Western South America, then the Viceroyalty of Peru, South America being the Viceroyalty of Peru, save the region of Brazil, which was Portuguese. Ocaña left Apache, uneven account of his travels in which he was dutifully explaining his alms collecting mission. I collected this much, these many bequests, these many donations, this much fundraising was achieved here, there, and somewhere else. But he also took it upon himself to tell a larger story. And it was the accumulation of narratives in place about things that he did. And here's the key, the things he wished he had done. He was an inveterate imposter and liar. I use those words just quickly and only once because I actually think like Cervantes and like others of that exact generation, the way of engaging with the world, whether it was in the Americas or back in Spain, was to imagine the universalizing, globalizing heights, while also realizing that it was built kind of like the empire out of paper mache, that it was bankrupt, that it was uh, in danger of pirates and failure, left, right, and center. And so Ocaña's tellings drew me in And I've spent the the larger part of the last decade or decade and a half trying to tell the story that really matters, not the one that would follow his journey, another day, another mule, but the one that would get me to that teller and what it represents. 
so there's this aspirational quality, let's say, to Okanya's narration. And I guess one of the, we're in a moment where we may be undergoing a massive epistemological shift. Categories like fake news, meaning not false news, but news that should not be true, not news that is not true. When you talk about the liar, we have these different ideas of what lying is that are epistemologically grounded. And of course, we're dealing with a pre-enlightenment person. So the enlightenment view of lies seems quite different than either the contemporary view that is gelling in the 21st century or in the, the Baroque era, which precedes the enlightenment. And so during the Trump campaign, people will say, well, when we think about the aspirational character of his descriptions, how do we situate that in like a bigger epistemological context? And I'm now wishing I hadn't said lie or liar. It's kind of that shorthand that one uses to catch attention. Um, because as your question hints, it's not the right word for his time. And within the larger thought world, of what that he inhabits and that his readers inhabit, it's more important to evoke a truth than to talk about what actually happened. It's important to follow out a vision, to be true to the enterprise. And from our point of view, um, some of those universalizing moves of a Catholic Christian in the Spanish early modern world, you know, or many of medieval worlds, um, looks to us like there is nothing but fiction to what emerges, that there's this hopeful optimist, there's this universalizing vision that obscures the tripping, the glorious failure, the twisting of a fact to read it in a certain way, the misrepresentation of multi-ethnic individuals to fit them into categories that will somehow support the larger vision. So he's all over that. And that and his readers' expectations are what are particularly interesting. And that's where getting into what Inga Clendenin are someone we read together years ago, this great, um, late, unfortunately, historian of, uh, of many things and Spanish America included. Um, she used to like to call it the sort of fog following Kundera, this notion that human beings proceed in a fog and it's recreating that fog that is the historical interpreter's job that in fact it's not the events it's the fog through which the events are experienced and perceived that is the thing we need to recover from the past the most thing we might most urgently need to recover i think that's right that's where we learn we may not always learn exactly what we want but we we will become wiser and surprise surprise we'll begin to suspect that we're proceeding down paths that are fog laden as well your mention of Inga Clendenin, and she is an elder in the historical profession. And I think one of the reasons that I found you a very easy person to relate to when I turned up, but you have these events in your home 
where elders of the historical profession were invited. And I found this quite striking because history is such a faddish discipline that uh, we're, we're usually quite disrespectful of our elders as historians. We're usually eager to talk about how the work they've done has become methodologically irrelevant mm -hmm. or has been in some way super surpassed or superseded. You honor Inga Clendenin. Uh, I attended that extraordinary event with uh, Terence Ranger at your home about talking about the time when he was there, when Robert Mugabe was still a member of ZAPU and he hadn't founded ZANU yet. And so this honoring of, of elders, why do you think this is so rare in the historical profession? Why, why are we so sort of faddish that we need these sort of countervailing influences to remind us of our elders and what they've achieved? Yeah, it gets back to that problem of dismissal. I think if there's one thing I'm leery of when I see it, it's dismissiveness. And I guess that that connects to this notion that somehow there was nothing seen by the benighted predecessors. Or if they saw it, of course, it was so flawed that we just needed to restate it um, and take credit often without being very fair to those shoulders on which we stand. Now, one doesn't want to overdo that. Obviously, one needs to move on and one needs to not just be paying homage all the time. But I think I'd like to unlock not just elders, but pretty much anyone. Some of the things that were happening in that Living Documents series that you're kindly referring to have turned up later in my life. There are various ways in which in collaborative projects that I've got involved with, personal narratives, intimate stories, examinations of mirrors. You know, why do we do what we do? Why do we ask those questions? Why do we always take ourselves with us from one project to another? That fascinates me. And it's become something that I've, it's forced me in some ways to choose my intellectual friends. I like the people who like to do that. And the ones who will compose miniatures that reveal sometimes far more than their essay or their work, that will reflect not only on their own choices and inspirations, but on their own proclivities and blind spots. That's what was happening in the living document. And we just keep doing it sort of wherever I go. You are kind to bring it up, but it's also quite perceptive because it's true. I'm literally doing it in two or three of the projects and even on the journal that I serve on as a, as a, as a member of the editorial board, we're talking about possibly doing interviews with mentors and mentors of mentor, of following and asking scholars to open themselves up. Not everybody wants to be vulnerable in that way or to expose their own genealogies or assumed genealogies or aspirational genealogies. Not everybody likes that at all, but the right people do. And that's been fun to follow up. And thanks for connecting it back. I'd forgotten about those evenings uh, in Toronto. It's interesting, right, how little a profession that studies the passage of time thinks about how we're seated in the passage of time ourselves. It, on the one hand, 
it should be an expected blind spot. And on the other, it's still a surprising blind spot. Coming out of an African-Canadian tradition, the fictive genealogy is always in your wheelhouse. Shortly after getting back to Vancouver, our, our shared breakdown tour of the Great Basin. Our adventures. Uh, our adventures. Yes, our adventures in the, in the Great Basin. Shortly after that, I became the authorized biographer of Leon Bibb. And of course, this situated me in a wonderful lineage because his the godfather of his children was Paul Robeson. Wow. He believed that... Paul Robeson was the godfather of his children, and I had always believed that Paul Robeson was the godfather of his children until one day in 2012, Leon unexpectedly claimed that he was my godfather, which was, of course, news to my parents. There's this element where these lineages are negotiated. So when I, when I talk about my time of working with you, there are two genealogies that I, I tend to go for. One is you introducing me to Irene Silverblatt, mm-hmm. the last of the great Holocaust survivor, Hannah Arendt intellectual mm-hmm. community. It was extraordinary to, to feel connected to, to that. And the other is the idea of conversion studies as a thing. Mm-hmm. The idea that conversion is a category that we can take to lots of places. Mm -hmm. When you think about the the genealogies you locate yourself in, which ones are the ones that are most important intellectually? It would really depend on the aspect I was thinking about. I wouldn't want to choose just one. I wouldn't be one of those people who John Eliot supervised the ending of my dissertation at Oxford. Let's talk about that. Though that would be a story I could tell, and there would be a mentorly relationship, definitely a writerly influence that's steep and interesting. But I would want to situate other mentorly situations. You mentioned Terence Ranger. When I first arrived to do my doctorate, I'd followed a scholarship, and there was really no one at that university working on colonial Latin America, this thing that I supposedly studied. Uh, Even early modern Spain was not represented at that time. And I was shunted around between people, all very well-meaning, but none of whom really knew what was going on. I needed to travel to St. Andrews, to Cambridge, to Warwick, to Liverpool, to London, to talk to people about things I was interested in. There was nobody at home. The only person who made space was Terence Ranger, the Africanist community who were all over the study of religious change in this more recent colonialism and post-colonialism that is Africa in comparison to the colonial period in Latin America. So Ranger was all over anthropological and historical literature around religious change. And they had so complicated conversion. They had connected it to earlier church expansions, to late antiquity, to other colonialisms. And they were into interesting questions where some of the colonial Latin American literature was, of course, quite promising, but it wasn't to the same degree. And it allowed this opening, but it was Ranger's mentorly demeanor and his 
ability to see an Andeanist interloper into that community. And that was vital. You know, I, otherwise I think I would have been um, just sailing around quite a bit, you know, and you know, as a uh, thinking back to your graduate student days, that can hurt. You're more vulnerable than you know. You're, similarly, I never studied with William B. Taylor, but it was William B. Taylor, the great historian of colonial Mexico, who was beginning to work on religion when I first met him, who just had time to talk and who wanted to do projects and who didn't care about what was most pragmatic. He had time to talk to me and think about things. I remember missing a flight when I first met him. So it's the Rangers and the Taylors and the Silverblatts and the Clendenins, um, the ones who just gave a damn along the way. Those were just off the top of my head, um, but I would go mentally, it would have to be plural. If I was doing anything related to intellectual genealogy or inspirational genealogy. In many ways, I, I think we, we don't even discover who our mentors were without a certain distance in time. I answer the question very differently about my mentors than I did even when um, we were in the same city doing related things. There's a certain hindsight that organizes all that. At this point, this is a good moment to talk about the beverage. And so the episode one beverage of uh, Cocktail Hour is the Gimlet. Tell me about the selection of the Gimlet. Well, the Gimlet, <laughs> first of all, I have to say, you, I hope you registered how excited I was when you said way back when that you were going to be doing a radio show. Of course, it's incarnation around Peter Zosky, with whom we both grew up, was something that excited me. I loved the omnibus nature of, uh, of Zosky's humor and his hosting. And the, the political panels were only the beginning of Zosky. And you know that. Not everybody knows that. They think of those political roundups as the thing that he did, but he was all over the map and he laughed his head off. He was emotionally engaged and vulnerable and yet generous, right? Very, all of very those well things put. At, yeah. uh, at the same moment, the classic Zosky question was he was being interviewed after he had quit and he was asked like what his biggest failure was as the interviewer on Morningside. And he said, why well, I, I made Conrad Black cry. Wow. Uh, said that Black had been on for half an hour. It went to the two minute station break at 1030. And then he uh, and then he said to uh, uh, he'd been interviewing Conrad Black about his book on Maurice Duplessis, I think. And he'd asked all of these like great questions and allowed all this stuff to be said. And then as soon as they were off air, Conrad Black looked at him and said, but did you like the book? And, and he couldn't say yes. He couldn't lie. He couldn't lie. And so Conrad Black started to tear up and the no second way. half of the interview didn't work. Wow. And, that's a, that's uh, a great story. Yes. It's like your failure of compassion for this monster actually yeah. is like yeah. you feel yeah. bad about that. But that On the other hand, he doesn't feel bad about like, Margaret Thatcher telling him that he disgusted her like that yeah. didn't even register. Yeah. Zosky was deeply able to convey those kinds of moments. I mean, I know, I know that one was off air and it's anecdotal, mm -hmm. but that was 
some of the magic of him. So what I was meaning to, to get to was that a radio host who was organizing his show around Zosky is something I'm into. And I thought it was a really good choice for you, given your many interests and skills and talents, Stuart. I thought, yeah, this is a really good fit. And now that you're reinventing it, I can't even believe I'm your first guest. That I, that I don't deserve in any way, as I'm, afo- I'm afraid I'm- Oh, you, you totally do. You, every- uh, in terms of my criteria, this is uh, this is where you're you're meant to be, and this is the exact moment to bring you on because some of the Zosky stuff was about my strengths, but I think you know that the real motivation was about addressing my my greatest weakness. That Peter Zosky had this ability to let other people speak, mm. and not in and and his all the moments he didn't speak when his guest paused, I thought, this is a thing that I I would like to try to talk Mm -hmm. a different way. I -hmm. would like to learn to shut up better. Mm. And that was a lot of what I tried to achieve with the Zosky tribute was to say, there are assertive ways of talking that can organize a show. And the cocktail hour will be much more about that. But the original Zosky tribute was not. Yeah, your interests will be less constrained, it sounds like. And you will be trying to draw out your guests in new ways. And that sounds really exciting. It's kind of that unlocking. And I like the vulnerability where we keep talking. Do you notice whether it's Okanya or us about various kinds of glorious failures, uh, awarenesses, um, things that we can build on. And I, I love that. Talk about aspirational. That's aspirational. You would like the reason I've chosen the Gimlet. It is the drink of choice of my favorite detective, Bernie Gunther, the creation of Philip Kerr. Unfortunately, Philip Kerr, the British novelist who died in 2018, is no longer with us, but his 12 or more Bernie Gunther movie, uh, 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 mysteries, set in Germany in the 1930s and during World War II and into the Cold War, it follows the rise of National Socialism. Um, and it, Bernie is a crime detective and eventually a hotel go-to guy in Nazism, amidst Nazism, and in the aftermath in various parts of the world. And there isn't a moment where he isn't ordering his second gimlet. And indeed, when he shows up on the French Riviera in the novel called The Other Side of Silence, um, he's drinking gimlets by the bucket. And indeed, there's a butler um, who serves the novelist W. Somerset Maugham, who is a character in the novel um, and who gets uh, his comeuppance, I might add. The butler makes buckets of gimlets for Bernie's arrival. So I've always thought, and I'm not really a cocktail guy. You know me well enough to know that a glass of red wine and even more a good glass of beer is really my drink. But when I drink a cocktail, it is Bernie Gunther's gimlet. That's so strange because uh, so much of my formative 
thinking about how to be a smart person also comes out of mystery novels, the the Inspector Morse novels. Oh yeah, uh, and of course you 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 would be the guy wanting the best bitter that that Morse is lining up for <laughs> at the pub. Yeah. The fact that he never says drinking, that thinking is always the word he uses as his euphemism for drinking, mm. I found wonderful. But when I read the Inspector Morse novels as a teenager. It was the first time I had ever seen someone describe how a smart person thinks. Mm. That the Sherlock Holmes, Miss Marple tradition treats intelligence as a magic trick. Right. It, 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 you can never see the brain work. It just produces miraculous results and you're left to connect the dots. Whereas listening to Inspector Morse think was the narrative payoff of an Inspector Morse novel. Yeah. So I'm curious about, uh, I've never heard of these, uh, these Bernie Gunther things. How do they narrate the mystery solving? Is his thought opaque or is it visible? It's oblique and opaque and all the other words. He is a disheveled mess and Bernie needs to go off by himself, hence the gimlets. And Bernie needs to walk by the river and Bernie needs to trip up and fail and almost die in order to figure anything out. Um, he needs to be compromised as he happens, as happens to him time and time again during Hitler's rise. You know, he has to watch what's possible in a very, very difficult and tricky world. He's always being underestimated and he makes love like someone who thinks it's the last time he'll ever be in bed. You are listening to Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker on CFUR 88.7. This is our Half Point Station break. We, we try to turn the Nazi regime into a moment and not a thing people lived under and not a thing people had to navigate and yeah. figure out how to express their opposition and stay alive or be ethical people in the context of a monstrous system that was not wholly monstrous, merely mostly monstrous. You know, one of the things I think that we often do as historians, right, is there's this terminology that comes out of the health field, which is that the term is population level. So we talk about individual level health and population level health and how these things are qualitatively different, right? And in your, your first really analytical book, you're writing about population level idolatry. There are case studies, but you're looking at the psychology of conversion at a population level, not at an individual level, looking at these forms of religious irregularities and the state. And we, of course, can get a picture of the social psychology of a world. But what any health researcher would tell us is that don't let that give you too many hints about the individual psychology in that world. And so this is where I, I want to come back to Okanya, this problem of choosing to follow the person. Where are you in terms of the narration of Okanya's inner life? Mm -hmm. how, how does one try to narrate the inner life of a, of a single actor 
historically? Where do where do you stop and start? It's going to sound cute or trite. I hope not. You have to stand on the edge of your evidence and imagine the things he, in this case, he cannot say, cannot appreciate, not condemn him for it, or indeed dismiss him, back to that word, but rather be very interested in the fact that you're corroborating evidence, your other bits, your other fragments, your other intuitions are leading you to think that here is an important place that he couldn't go or didn't go. So for example, when he crosses the Andes, on the way back to Lima for the fourth time, he often is recuperating in Lima. And it's where he does most of the writing of this long, messy cross-genre manuscript. He's crossing sacred territory. My idolatry research and in interest in indigenous peoples, religious changes through colonial times, had taught me about this world of ancestral beings that had lithomorphized, that had become the peaks, that had become the landscape, that had granted things, and that, you know, sacred histories were told about their contributions. And of course, this is true of many cultures, but this was the Andean version. Okanya was oblivious. So what do I do with his miracle narrative of surviving in the snow because of the warmth of his mule, of dismissing the Indians because the indigenous guide has got him into this fix in the first place. And what's more, they're always just looking for a drink, he writes. So I've got a despicable hero. I've got the anti-hero par excellence, but I've also got a huge opportunity to step beyond person. So in no way is this biographical. Okanya is my opportunity, my point of entry into a world that befuddled, bewitched, and completely enveloped him, you know, to the point that he wrote this journal, this long autobiographical manuscript about his journey that needed to come out a certain way, that needed to present a kind of miraculous survival story. And what's more, the planting of satellite devotional communities to the Virgin, wherever he roamed, all of which, you know, give me aftermath stories, so-called afterlives, because all of these images have futures. All of the indigenous peoples and multi-ethnic communities amongst whom these Virgin Marys landed continue. And so Okanya <laughs> is, he would have rolled in his grave to know what befell the story he meant to control, the fictive world, the needful universalizing world that he needed to depict. And so you can see that I I'm following the person, but I'm not. I'm beside him on a mule, but I'm not. It's that negotiation of that near immersion is what I'm trying to call it, um, where you benefit from not being an advocate, an understander. 
you're a shadowy companion, not necessarily. Uh, and 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 I'm, I'm, un- I'm and I'm unreliable in ways that make me like him, make me as him. If you see what I mean. I mean, I need to construct a sort of layer to the narrative, and I'm ready to do that now. Another reason the book hasn't been finished is I'm trying to insert my own journey to this kind of study um, as part of the, the story. And I, I think that, you know, in the spirit of a Clendenin or a Greg Denning, I'm hoping that it's not self-indulgent, but rather that it only opens the story more persuasively, more alluringly to know that I also have my foibles. I have my interest points. I also go over mountain passes and don't see the sacred meaning, if you see what I mean. On the rare occasions, you, you, you're very restrained in telling stories of your adventures in the Andes. In those stories, one inevitably does ask questions about the relationships that are formed and how they're conditioned for the other subject. Oh, And so... And there's this question of the commensurability, the degree to which we can make our stories converge. And, you know, when you're talking about the uh, the, the mountains, I, I did some work on this idea of landscape indexicality. In societies that do not have a full literacy, irrespective, you know, we can, we can bracket the quipu. We don't have to have a theory about what what those knots on the strings meant. But it seems common that in societies that we encounter, that discover literacy at the same time they meet us, that story and map tend to function synergistically. That a common route through a landscape or a set of landscapes is such a handy way of indexing episodes in a story. And episodes in a story are such a handy way of writing a map if you don't have a piece of paper, that the more you can fuse map and story into one thing, we can see whether it's Franz Boas on the Northwest coast of BC or whether it's um, you know these moments in the Andes we're looking back at a world that once it has literacy, the landscape will stop indexing in the same way because it's not urgent for the landscape to do that. That there are other tools one can use to, to write these indices. And so I'm wondering when we look, when you look at these encounters that he has, obviously it's important to stress the incomprehension. But what's our comprehension, incomprehension balance, not just for Okanya, but for the people he talks about meeting? How far into each other are these people seeing? And what are the things that they're able to see, given the incomplete nature of that perception? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Impossible to answer perfectly because there's such a range. So some people do look relatively seen the people he's ready to describe and appreciate shall we if i can use that word are not surprisingly fellow extremeños people from his region of spain who guess what have money for the virgin who show him a good time 
who become his first recruits in the Lay Religious Association, who smooth his way in various ways. He has a number of other encounters, though. He's constantly describing people. And this is where you have to put your historical interpreter's hat on. Um, when he says Lima is full of Black women, he's telling us something. Of course, he doesn't appreciate them in the way that he appreciates that rich Extremaduran, but he is appreciating bounty and abundance and liveliness and omnipresence and market and um, religious activity. And he's giving us a flawed but fascinating readable trace to something. When he gets lost on the North Coast, something, he's always getting lost. He creates a kind of chivalric episode. He's always playing with these literary frames, as I um, alluded to earlier. And in one of the lost sequences, he meets a Creole woman, a woman of Spanish descent born in the Americas. He shares seven of the top <laughs> 10 prejudices against Creoles that you would expect a peninsular Spaniard of his day to have. But by the end of the experience, this dama, this lady, in the, in the wasteland, in the hinterland, has charmed him with her intelligence, her learning, her curiosity, much of which feeds his ego, by the way, but her, her child rearing, her gifts, everything about her works. And there's a kind of conversion that he presents of himself into someone who says, guess what? These Americas and these Creoles, these Spaniards who are supposed to deteriorate and become indigenous and have all sorts of things go wrong. Maybe, maybe not. So there's the fictive Ocaña again, playing with an outcome, teasing a sort of an awareness into being through that thing that you gorgeously put as a sort of story ind index, right? That, that town, he's between towns, he's lost. That doesn't even exist in his journal without his, his imagination and his ability to create a story out of it. Kind of like the story you or I might tell and embellish um, and frame and present as part of a kind of, and then I didn't die, you know, partly because I met this Creole woman who was way better than you might expect, you know? Oh, I'm making yeah. flip. I'm making flippant of it, but it's really an amazing moment. Like as amazing as the more passing notice of all the black women in the big city. They're public women, right? He's not. He's not used to. He's not used to that. We live in this moment where there's this thing called the past. It seems to contain everything, and everyone is bad. And <laughs> we use terms like white, colonial, European. And I remember you explaining, I still haven't read the book because you explained it too well, the men of Cajamarca yeah. um, and this discovery that it's this one remote section of Spain in the Northwest that is some kind of bizarre martial hinterland shit show that's been going on for centuries, that's heavily implicated in the Reconquista. <laughs> um, 
that there's um that, that there's this strange decision we've made in our endless sort of uh, in our efforts to you know wash blood off our hands in the present with our tears by blaming our ancestors we we turn our European ancestors into this non-variegated mass of lust for gold. But I, I wanted to talk, I wanted to ask you about some of the ambivalence of being uh, from Estremadura. <laughs> what did that actually mean in a Spanish context versus a Peruvian context? You mean for Ocaña or just generally? Uh, both, either yeah. way. Yeah, well, the people from this Western kingdom of Extremadura were everywhere. Um, they, the great scholar Ida Altman has studied, you know, extremeños who went to New Spain, what is now, you know, dominated by Mexico, but they were everywhere and they were only one of the major players um, in the post-conquest world of Peru as well. Pizarro and his family are from Trujillo in Extremadura, for example, and some of the first colonizers. Indeed, the region, the reason that many of the men of Cajamarca were from there is because Pizarro tried to do it legally, what Cortes had done illegally in Tenochtitlan in Mexico. Pizarro went back, signed a capitulación with the crown, and gathered his brothers and friends from his home region, people he thought he might trust. This, by the way, is the guy who gets killed just a few years later in Lima, assassinated. But um, I, I digress. Um, what's interesting about the Extremadurans is you could tell the same story about the Basques. Uh, you could tell the same story about the people of Asturias and the northerly regions that you were referring to that... Um, onto whom the myth of the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula from the Moors is attached. Um, each regional patria really asserts itself and looks after its own and has feuds and clan battles in places like Lima and Potosi and Mexico City and Puebla, places all over Spanish America. So there's a way in which they do need contextualizing and variegation the individuation of these Spaniards, many of whom left us crucial accounts, um, needs to continue if we are to be able to understand far more about the wider populations and indeed the peoples that are being um, impacted by some of these actions. So we can't uh, throw that European baby out with the bathwater. Um, I do worry about some of the, you know, the current directions and virtue signalings and the well-meaning histories from below that are only gaining importance in our world. But we've got to do it right with yeah. a sort of vision and not just a, a slapdash corrective. It's as if we didn't learn what went wrong with resistance studies um, 50 years ago. You know, that, that sort of blind corrective, which took us um, into doing the same problems over again. I was talking uh, to a friend who had been part of the 
peacekeeping efforts of, uh, of NATO in uh, Bosnia. And he was just talking to me about how in the particular town in Bosnia that was being occupied, it wasn't being occupied by Canadians. It was being occupied by something far more specific. It was being occupied by Plains Métis Canadians. Wow. Right? The Métis are a quarter of the army below the officer level, a quarter of the privates are uh, Métis. And uh, so it's a little bit different having a Bosnian Muslim town occupied by the Métis than (laughs) if we just said Canadians. (laughs) The record of resistance studies, like it's been so wiped clean, I'd never heard the term before. And so I wondered, we don't have a lot of time left. If you could say a little bit about what resistance studies was and where it went. Well, I can't really be the... You're not the authority. You're just the yeah. guy who's here right now. Yeah, I'm the guy that's here right now. Um, I think I was already skeptical. But I think that when I was writing, when I first began researching, you know, as a, a master's student at the University of Alberta, I think resistance had to be in most of my titles. It really needed to be part of the equation. There needed to be, there needed to be resistance. But soon after that, I think I discovered that there needed to be a more holistic approach. And so it didn't come naturally to everyone. There were still people hanging on. Um, I remember many well-meaning advisors telling me, if you want to study native Andean religion and culture in colonial times, don't spend so much time on the priests, those extirpators of idolatry, those judges who went out to discover what error was. They are bad, bad, bad. Churchmen, bad, bad, bad. And I stuck to my guns, not to say that I had vision, but I knew that what they discovered was so surprising. They uncovered that idolatry was this massive blanket over a very complex transforming world. And that much, much of the things that had survived were not only huacas and ancestral beings and various kinds of religious paraphernalia and ritual specialties, but there were also reinventions of Christianity. And here's where I got really excited because the churchmen, though they didn't appreciate it in the way that we might wish, we might wish them to be resisted, right? Um, They had been the planters of these Frankenstein monsters that had wandered off with and in the hearts and in the invention tools, the imaginations and the religious um, verve of native Andean and multi-ethnic peoples. So that cutting out the churchmen, I mean, oh my God. Well, I think you, I, I remembered wrestling with this because of course I'd come out of resistance studies was no longer a term. I was late going back to school, blah, blah, blah. But I, I do remember this challenge um, when I began thinking about things in terms of conversion, because there is no pure Christianity or pure Islam or pure Buddhism. It is it only succeeds if there is some part of what was already there that fuses with it. And that this idea that the term syncretism is actually a fairly racist term because it suggests 
that when white people hybridize Christianity with their folk beliefs, they're Christians. But when an indigenous person does the same thing, we refuse to take them at their word. That's right. That we they're... refuse to believe them that this is Christianity. Yeah. And um, I think of, of movements like the Zapatistas and how heavily edited they have to be. For our context, the idea that there is an overarching Catholicism motivating Mayan separatists uh, in Chiapas, yeah. that seems to unsettle us. Oh, it's a, it's a real block to giving people the respect they deserve as, you know, as people capable of mobilizing ideas for themselves. Um, and again, as you say, it, 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 it has this kind of strange block, this racist block about who gets to constantly reinvent and blend and who doesn't, who gets to, who gets stuck in this sort of methodological prison. Um, you've got to resist. You're indigenous. It's too sad if you don't. You're the vanquished. Um, that does no respect um, yes, to indigenous just, histories. Yes, there's this idea that that we get to be modern and you get to have culture. That's your choice. There's some binary choice. White people are modern and have no culture. Non-white people are never in the present and, mm -hmm. and they get to have culture. And we, we respect uh, the, the culture. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a strange binary that we're in. In a way, I really was seeking irrelevance when I, uh, when I started working with you. But I think there's a strange kind of pressing relevance that's shown up in all of this, that there's actually something quite important to be said in our political moment on that front. And so I thought um, I'd, we'd sort of leave off with this crazy moment that's happening in Western Canada, that we have the heat, the heat dome happened Lytton was incinerated, you know, the climate event is taking place. And in the midst of that incineration are these intentional arsons of Catholic churches. And it's highly unpredictable as to which, which side anyone will be on there. But I, I, I wondered in, in looking at the larger burning and then the intentionally burning churches within it, how that was received by you Mm -hmm. way over there in the middle of the Great Lakes teaching about this stuff. Yeah. Well, it is hard to watch. Um, it's important to think about um, residential schools in Canada, speaking as a Western Canadian, um, are things that were known about. We didn't know the extent and we are right to be shocked by the neglect, the abuse, by the graves. So I find it to be a useful thinking moment. Whether the political leaders are able to grasp it is quite another matter. But there is a smug turning away. There has been a history of turning away, of throwing money at First Nations, of forgetting 
what the First Nations lawyers and intellectuals have been saying for years, what the storytellers have been saying for years of not listening. Um, there was lots of, again, virtue signaling by former prime ministers. Um, but this goes to Trudeau's father. This goes to people long before Trudeau. Um, a lot of Canadian policy, not British, not Catholic policy, um, not only denominational impetus, in other words, needs to answer the call um, of this, you know, intergenerational tragedy. Um, so the trouble with it is that it, 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 the sensationalism aspect can distract us from root and branch. And that's one of the things I've been thinking about as I watch the reactions and listen to the speeches from abroad, um, you know, social media and the white savior complex exhausts me on these, at these moments. And I fear, I fear it, Stuart. And I know that it's something you follow very carefully, but I, it's something that I would want to talk about with the likes of you as the fallout, as the aftermath of the graves sinks in. That was Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker on CFUR 88.7 FM here in Prince George. <laughs>